A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty free products that are safe for your skin and the planet? Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited-edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM. Five hundred years ago, this month, a small band of sailors completed the first ever circumnavigation of the globe, led by Fernand de Maillet, anglicised as Ferdinand Magellan, or Magellan if you're in the States. Having set out with an armada of five ships and some 270 men, only one ship and 18 men returned. Magellan was dead. This was an extraordinary voyage. Setting out from Spain, Magellan and his crews had no idea of the extent of the Pacific Ocean. Their maps were outdated and Magellan underestimated the route by at least half. There were risks of storms, starvation, sickness and mutiny. And there were genuine fears of mermaids who could enchant sailors, submerged magnets that could pull nails from ships causing them to sink and sea monsters. Despite these extraordinary challenges, the voyage returning forever altered the world's ideas about cosmology and geography and much else besides. Here to talk to us about this incredible story is award-winning biographer, historian and chronicler of exploration, Lawrence Burgreen. Lawrence has written about Casanova, Columbus, Marco Polo, and Louis Armstrong, among many others. And today he's here to talk about his superb book, Over the Edge of the World, Magellan's terrifying circumnavigation of the world, which has proved so popular that it is now in its 33rd printing. Rumour has it, it's being made into a film. It is lovely to see you. Thank you so much for making the time to come on this podcast. We are, of course, marking the big anniversary of Magellan's circumnavigation. So it's a particularly wonderful time to be having this conversation. So I guess we should dial back and position ourselves in the late 15th century, get a sense of the scene. You know, we've got some European monarchs hell-bent, though they wouldn't have seen it that way, heaven-bent on exploration. Which monarchs specifically are we talking about and what do you think motivated them? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it power? Is it wealth? If we're talking about Magellan, it's an odd mixture of faith and divine will that they intuited belonged to them and greed. 
and it eventually metamorphosed into mostly green. But the original inspiration, it's not to explore. The concept of exploring that we have now is an 18th century thing. It was some sort of conquest and to, if possible, find people to convert them to Christianity. Magellan certainly had that sense of a divine mission. But there was also a sense of competition. And it was a weird mixture. Magellan, of course, was Portuguese. He had tried for years to get King Joao, who was a rather enigmatic and taciturn figure, to back him. And Joao didn't. A lot of other would-be explorers had the same experience. So he went to Spain, which was a much larger kingdom, much more powerful, but more open to exploration. Fortunately for people who were writing about it now, it was much less secretive. Everything that happened in Portugal was really secretive. Documents were destroyed. There's a lot of things we don't know. We hear rumors about. There may even have been other would-be Miguelans before him. But Spain was open. And if you want to make a very rough analogy, and it can break down in many places, it was like the space race, the Soviet Union being secretive, and the United States failures and all being open. So we know more about what happened in the United States in that era. We know more about Magellan and the others. On the other hand, he was not exactly their idea of a heroic navigator. The king of Spain, Charles I, Carlo, put various nobility in charge of this expedition to the Moluccas, to the Spice Islands. And they were going, they said, in search of valuable spices. And they had no conception of what the world was like. So they set off on a very ill-advised mission. And Magellan was there, but he was constantly assaulted on all sides, sometimes literally, by would-be usurpers. And the possibility of a mutiny was ever-present. And it's only in retrospect that we see this as his expedition. In fact, of those five ships, it was seen as a Spanish expedition. And he was not quite along for the ride, but uh, tolerated. Eventually, through a sort of Darwinian process, he asserted himself, and it was his vision that carried it out. Of course, we know he didn't make it. He only made it about half or two-thirds of the way through, and later on, a Basque mariner named Sebastian Elcano took over. So it's often now known as the Magellan-Elcano expedition. It really depends on your perspective about what you call it. Nevertheless, he was the first European to show that you could sail around the world. Everybody knew the world was round, but to demonstrate that was actually a fact. And he was also the first European to sail across this huge body of water known as the Pacific. At the time Magellan left, the Pacific was seen as a minor, small body of water. He thought he could traverse it in a few days. Once he left the west coast of the Americas, he was only a hop, skip, and a jump before he was in the Moluccas on the outskirts of what he called India or China. And you would say he was hopelessly confused, but this was the conventional wisdom in Europe at that time. No one understood how huge the Pacific was, what a challenge it would be, and neither did he. If he had known, he probably wouldn't have gone. Can you give us some sense of his character in his early career? When we get to this stage of him taking this big voyage, who is he? What's he like and what are the events that have brought him to that point? 
We don't know that much about the nuances of his personality, but we can certainly see the bold outlines of a warrior navigator. He walked with a limp. He had been injured, and he was at first very loyal to King João because he was Portuguese. Later on, he transferred his loyalty to King Charles, and he was considered very tough. Everybody was very tough, courageous, reckless at that point, because after all, so they were sailing out into the unknown. They weren't afraid of everything from sea monsters to mutiny. So they faced threats from both nature and human beings all along the way. His courage was really extraordinary. He was also a person, as I mentioned before, of great faith. I think he needed something to carry him through. He was hoping to become wealthy from this voyage, from discoveries, but from spices which were considered more valuable than gold at that point. But, of course, he didn't live to see it. Why did he do it? I think it was this messianic sense that he was meant to do it. He didn't realize the amount of conflict and the time it would take. He thought he would be back in Seville, from which he departed in a matter of months, and be given a hero's welcome. Of course, it didn't turn out that way. Add to that point about spices. Yes. Because, obviously, since antiquity, spices had travelled from Asia along trade routes by sea and land. Why is the focus on them so much greater at this time? I think because they were transportable. Gold was very heavy and considered less valuable than spices. Also, the spices had many different uses. It wasn't just a flavor food. It was to preserve and embalm bodies. It was for health. It was considered a magical potion, if you will, to preserve life. The main spices they wanted, you can now find them on a grocery shelf. Clove and cinnamon and others, all very mundane or easily obtainable for us. But at that point, very hard to get. Then you have to couple that with his religious or messianic intentions, plus implicitly conquest, because he felt that any land he reached, he could claim not only for Spain, for which he was sailing, but he hoped he could set himself up as a king with Spanish cooperation and rules. He had multiple ambitions. People sometimes think he went to slaughter locals whom he encountered along the way, but that actually wasn't his intention. Later on, it became much more hostile. Okay, so you mentioned about the fact that he was Portuguese and that he's approaching a Spanish monarch. Can we think about those tensions? Were the tensions in that? Did it cause a problem for him that he was leading this Spanish expedition? There was always a sense of mistrust and that he was not going to be completely loyal. That's why King Carlos stocked the ship with his Spanish nobility, who were, he considered to be loyal and would keep an eye on Magellan and would carry out the mission in case Magellan took it in a different direction. But he was surrounded by spies, if you will. And it was really a different era and a different mindset. We think of this as the age of exploration. This was long before the age of enlightenment, which was the 18th century. It was almost a medieval mindset of more faith-inspired thinking and assumptions. Magellan was on the cutting edge and was rather painfully, and by sacrificing his life, showing that the world was shaped differently and looked differently than was assumed in Western Europe. Did Carlos, who many people will know as Charles V, later the Holy Roman Emperor, did he finance the entire expedition? The financing came from several sources, but it was mostly financed and had the blessing of Spain. That was the important part. And as we think of it now, it actually wasn't that expensive an expedition. And the thought it was a question of return on investment. 
and the spices were considered to be so much more valuable than the hardware, if you will, the ships and people that they were selling out. Remember, life was considered cheap at that point. They expected a high attrition rate among the sailors and that's or the crew, and that's exactly what happened. Of course, only one boat came back, and the spices on board that were worth so much that King Charles was delighted because it justified the entire mission in an economic sense. And so as far as he was concerned, mission accomplished. I'd love to talk a bit about the sort of practicalities of setting out on this voyage, how these ships were equipped and provisioned, and I guess a bit about life at sea. I was visiting the Mary Rose, and one has a sense of these were big ships, but still, this is not somewhere I'd like to be spending six months, you know, in the presence of high seas. This is a dangerous endeavour, let alone not having access to fruit and vegetables and food. How did they do it? How did they have it in mind, the logistics? In my book about the gallon over the edge of the world, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. But even now, I don't really know how they did it because it was so rigorous. They slept on planks or they slept on the deck. They didn't sleep much because they had to keep watch. So getting a good night's sleep was impossible. They didn't have vacation layovers or stopovers. They thought they could be attacked by somebody or something, sea monsters or storms at any moment. Food that they ate was generally very primitive. They brought some food with them, but, for example, the biscuits and things like that became wormy after a while. But desperate people become desperate, and they ate it anyway. So they were malnourished, for sure. Once they began to pass some islands and had brief respite, they were able to avail themselves of some fresh food, but they were often afraid that it was poison because they didn't know the difference. So, in a word, the diet was terrible, and they were all suffering from some malnutrition. There was an interesting exception, which I write about, which was vitamin C, which came from citrus, beer, a lot of sources of vitamin C. And this was pure accident. We now know that it's a cure or preventative for scurvy. The body doesn't produce it naturally, but it's available in a lot of sources. One of the delicacies that Magellan and a few members of the crew enjoyed were made from what we would call crab apples, which they had brought with them, a very tart jam. And without realizing it, they were imbibing a lot of vitamin C and therefore automatically protecting themselves against scurvy. And so they often wondered why he and the other officers did not suffer from this horrible scourge. And they really didn't know why. The Chinese, who were more advanced, knew. Arab sailors knew. But Europeans didn't know, and it really wasn't officially demonstrated until the 18th century by the English. And that was a fluke that enabled Magellan to survive. If he hadn't been able to avail himself of some sort of scurvy prevention, who knows what would have happened. And how did they navigate, given that their maps only went so far? At one point, he became extremely irritated when the Pacific proved seemingly endless and they could never reach India, China. The two terms are interchangeable. And he became exasperated and threw his maps, which were inaccurate, overboard in complete frustration. And it was a temper tantrum, but it was also an acknowledgement that the maps were actually misleading him. And so he sailed by the seat of his pants. That meant drawing on his lifetime experience of reading the winds and the tides and uh, praying. That was their method of sailing. But he really didn't know how far this was going to last. 
So they just kept going and going. They also accidentally got some help from the trade winds. They discovered that the trade winds existed. These are steady winds that blow across the Pacific and gave them a boost all along the way. So that was also another boon that they hadn't known about that accidentally helped them. The other one was that they finally, after months and months of sailing, bumped into this tiny island, but they really didn't know where they were. They eventually wound up in the vicinity we now call the Philippines after King Philip. But at that point, again, they thought they were somewhere near India and China, and they were still rather confused about what they were doing. They were even more perplexed when they came across the wreckage of a Chinese expedition that had sailed a century before them, complete with maps and some carvings, and they didn't know what to make of it because they had no idea what this was. It seemed to them to be almost supernatural. When you start studying Magellan or following his circumnavigation, it leads into so many different areas. There's a scientific dimension. There's a historical dimension. There's a spiritual dimension. And there's one about just sheer human endurance we're all guided by our assumptions about what we should do every day. Once Magellan began this expedition, or Magellan, he was challenged every day because his assumptions proved to be not helping him at all. I think the most dramatic example was when he finally threw his maps out the window. For me, it's a multi-dimensional exploration. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I suppose it's also a story of human relationships. How did you find out about the relationships between Miguel and, and the other men aboard the five ships? Some of them left some record of it. Unfortunately, Magellan's diaries or him personal impressions or letters went to the bottom of the sea and have never been found. However, he did, again, another lucky event was he brought a chronologer or chronicler along with him, Antonio Bigafetta, who was a well-trained, fairly sophisticated Venetian diplomat. And he became quite an admirer of Magellan. He didn't really have to be. That wasn't really his initial role. And he gave some descriptions of what Magellan was like under pressure. And time and again, you saw somebody through Pigafetta's eyes who was very resourceful and very brave. The most heartrending or dramatic example of that was the scene where he described the death of Magellan in the Philippines in a completely unnecessary battle with the indigenous people there that he stumbled into and which could have been avoided. It's so funny because it leads to a ambivalent legacy of Magellan because on the one hand in the Philippines he is revered as the bringer of Christianity which is a very important part of Philippine life and is that messianic part. On the other hand he's seen as an invader and the local hero if you will was a leader in the Philippines named Lapu Lapu. And Lapu and his band of warriors with their fire-hardened wooden swords slaughtered Magellan and a few other people at close range. And this was captured in graphic detail by Pigafetta as an eyewitness account. And it's heartrending and it's appalling and really gives a vivid sense of Magellan's courage to the point of folly and also the way that they really underestimated the opposition they might find because there were hundreds, if not thousands, of locals who attacked him. And there were a dozen or 15 Europeans who thought that they would be protected by their firearms and their metal armor and things like that. But of course, it was not enough. Anyway, thanks to Pigafetta, we have that record. Pigafetta was one of the few survivors who made it all the way around and back to Seville. I'm sure there were other records that were lost, but we don't have them. You're absolutely right about this very contested, complicated legacy and this idea that what for the Spanish and the Portuguese taking this voyage was discovery, for others is invasion. And there are accounts, for example, when he landed at that island of Guillaume, they had a small boat stolen from them and killed indigenous people and burned their houses in response. How do you grapple with that today? How do you feel like we should talk about this voyage at this moment of remembrance and anniversary, when we don't want to be perhaps writing hagiography and we don't want to be talking about it just heroically, we want to kind of honour that complicated nature. How do you think we should approach it? I think on several different levels, we can try and put ourselves in the shoes of other people and see it from other sides and realize, okay, they had a point of view, but really most people don't do that. Or they say history is a kind of a fiction upon which many people agree. But the Magellan, it depends where you are in the world, how it looks to you. And it looks to us in one way, and it's going to look 
in the Philippines in another way. It's going to look in other parts of the world in a different way. It's just he's a controversial figure. He survives in some ways just as a symbol of exploration. The word Magellan or Magellan just symbolizes exploration or direction finding or something. So I don't really have a simple answer to that question, except it's constantly evolving and that the important part of that mission, which sounds vague, is that he demonstrated conclusively that it was one world. Now, there may well have been other people who did, but we don't really have convincing records that demonstrate beyond the shadow of a doubt. And when I say Magellan, I need survivors of the expedition. So that's the big takeaway. But all these others, they're often very troubling because he just went from one kind of conflict to another. It was person versus person. It was person versus nature. It was different kinds of perception, superstition versus science. It went on and on. This made for an exciting story, but it was bewildering as I was researching it and writing it because in some ways it was inspiring and encouraging, in other ways very disillusioning. Anyway, I tried to just put my own values aside and talk about what happened on the story. And I sometimes had this feeling that I had come across some sort of skeleton of something. These records, I tried to use primary sources as much as possible and visit some of these places and put them together and see what the entire beast looked like. It was also an opportunity for inspiration because I went through the Strait of Magellan on a rather small cruise ship. I went with a friend and it was an extraordinary experience. I think Magellan's men, his crew experienced something of the same thing because it was awe-inspiring. You can believe that there's a divine presence because it was so huge, it was so immense, it was so silent in many ways. It was an awe-inspiring experience. You can get a sense, maybe I'm inferring it, that the expedition was somehow different once they emerged from the Strait of Magellan, which, of course, it wasn't called the Strait of Magellan then, but when they went in, they found it only by rumor. And it's a lot of speculation about what was the source of that rumor. And it was part of Magellan's and his pilot's brilliance that they avoided false channels through the southern tip of the Americas and actually got to the passage all the way through. And it was a really extraordinary experience. One of it was unforgettable at that point to try and retrace their track. And actually, you noticed earlier in the book that the captains and the crew had quite an experience in Rio, and Magellan described it as the closest he'd come to paradise. What happened there? What happened there was they got a very friendly reception from the local inhabitants. It sounds like something out of a movie. They swam out to the ships. They were happy to take partners. The sailors were thrilled to suddenly have, you know, some kind of involvement and intimacy, which they had sorely missed. And so that kind of welcoming hospitality, it was great. But they had to keep moving on. And of course, that was not the kind of reception they got elsewhere. It could have been because although he didn't go and attack all the time, there was a lot of suspicion on both sides. Actually, that's what happened in the Philippines. But his encounters in Rio were part of the, if there was any fun to be had on the voyage or enjoyment or sense of a personal connection, that's when it occurred. And you mentioned there the crew, the sailors, and you've talked about how much of the paperwork is lost and perhaps some of these people weren't able to write anyway. But what do we know about the hierarchy and roles of these people? 
was a multinational crew. They were mostly there because there was nothing else they could do with their lives. Many of them were convicts or ex-convicts. They were undesirables. Well, this was the best option that maybe the only option that was open to them. And that's how they got their crew. And many of them, when they sailed out, when they raised anchor, had no sense or hope that they would ever return. It was voyage to nowhere for many of them. And that's really turned out to be the case. There were a few who made it all the way around aboard Victoria, just a handful of crew members. Of course, there had been some who were left along the way, but of the few who made it back, they were not given a hero's welcome. This was not like astronauts coming back after going to the moon or circling the globe. They were penitents. And it was uh, around Easter time, and they went with bloody knees across stones as an act of penance and went off to try and live their lives. Some actually, Elcano, went back to sea on other expeditions. Others just wanted to disappear. They didn't think of themselves particularly as being heroic, and they thought of themselves as sinners who were lucky to be alive. It's been an incredible thing when you think about it. So... Do you think there was never a sense in which they thought they were making history? It's anachronistic to think about it like that. I've thought a lot about that. And certainly Gufeta had a sense that they might have done something heroic. But I think the others had a sense that they were just lucky to be alive. They didn't really appreciate or stand back and admire what they had been through. And they thought of themselves as convicts who had escaped certain death or likely death. But they did not think of themselves as heroes, particularly. At certain points in the voyage, Magellan comes across as a complete megalomaniac. (laughs) Can you outline some of these occasions and what do you think drove such behaviour? I think a lot of it was the way he was perceived. Captains at that point had the power of life and limb over their sailors. So if they wanted to execute them, they could. Also combined with the sense of megalomania that you mentioned, a messianic aspect to it. In that sense, Magellan was not the exception. He was the rule. That's how captains were pretty much in that era. Later on, it changed. But the little bit that we know about his contemporaries, they all tended to be that way. So tell us one or two stories of his behaving in this way. The most threatening mutiny that he faced took over several ships, and one by one, he managed to conquer them or co-opt them or escape them. And it was quite a feat of strategy and courage that he was able to do that. And again, because he succeeded, he attributed that to God's will, to divine will. And he was going to execute some of his men. Some he did as an example when near the beginning of the voyage, one of the ways he asserted his authority was that he executed several mutineers on the coast of South America very dramatically. And their death agonies and his very stern behavior set an example of fear that this is what could happen to other mutineers. That helped him assert his authority. It wasn't through a sense of fairness or goodwill or anything like that. It was just fear. Yes, there's something of the prison mentality about it. He has to demonstrate that he has the capacity to rule in order to get them to obey. In a sense, the Port St. Julian event, which I was talking about, was the first time he really asserted his authority convincingly with this unruly multinational crew and realized that he was, in fact, formidable and could be dangerous if they crossed him. So that was, in some sense, a rite of passage for Magellan 
for the crew. We don't really have examples of his doing that on earlier voyages. If there were any, then he did something like this. He was untested until that time. That was the first big test that he faced. Now, you mentioned earlier the circumstances in which he died. Did losing their captain general endanger the voyage? In a sense, for many people, and actually for a number of books about the voyage, that's where the story ends, with his death. However, because the few survivors got it together and Elcano emerged as their leader or de facto leader, it did continue, and in Magellan's spirit, went back to Seville. Again, it depends how you look at it, but he was carrying out the original mission that Magellan had, so fulfilling his destiny, if you will. I think that's probably what Magellan would have wanted him to do. There was, again, more conflict. He was a Basque, and that meant he spoke a different language, and he was an outsider among other Portuguese, let alone Spanish. So Basque mariners were a breed, if you will, under themselves. They were extremely adept, accomplished mariners. They lived to do that. They were known to be very brave, but they were also in a different language, somewhat different culture, and there was a rivalry or lack of understanding between Basques and the rest of the continent. It was interesting that they all were forced to pull together to accomplish this mission. And it's hard to say, did they prove it was impossible or very difficult to do? Or did they prove it could be done? It's a struggle that goes on and on. It seemed to me, as I looked at this story, that Magellan was such a skillful navigator that he could have eased, not easily, but with a sense of accomplishment and authority, circumnavigated the world. The difficult part for him, the tragic part, was the human element. That proved more dangerous than nature and more treacherous. So the more difficult challenge that he faced, how do you deal with so much opposition among other people? That's so interesting because it demanded such an extraordinary skill set to be the right sort of person to do this and also to be able to manage those oppositional forces mounting against you in trying to do it. Well, he had no particular techniques for dealing with the crew. It was just the usual assertion of his authority. And as I said, the crew really didn't know what they were in for. He didn't explain to them how dangerous this would be. There was a language problem at all times because they came from so many different backgrounds. They mistrusted each other. In some ways, that could have been an advantage because it meant that he was the unifying force and they couldn't all get together and gang up against him, although that was a constantly a threat that they would do that, especially among the Spanish who considered themselves the real chiefs of this expedition. So there were just layers of conflict emerged as it went on. Wonderful discoveries that were haphazard along the way about scurvy, about what we now call the Magellanic Clouds, about the trade winds, about locations of continents, about proof positive. Yes, it is the world is round. These were all accidental. This was not a scientific mission. We value that now because that's part of its lasting legacy, but that's not why they went out. You mentioned that so few returned. Why was that? So few returned because at one point during one of the mutinies, a couple of ships turned around and decided to go against orders. And some of them made it eventually, and some of them didn't. So there was the mutiny factor. There was also storms that destroyed a ship and others who died. They were just left for dead. The attrition rate was 
enormous, but not that unusual. A hundred years later, it was a completely different story in terms of the expectation with the amount of crew who would perish along the way. But they were really considered expendable. And Miguel, again, very courageous, but very stony-hearted as well. Warm and fuzzy, he was not. (laughs) You say that had he returned home, he would likely have been jailed. (laughs) Tell us why that is. I think jailing would have been just automatic. He would have been tried for some sort of sedition because he condemned two Spanish mutineers at Port St. Julian to death. So that could have gotten him in deep trouble and even executed. So he would not have gotten a hero's welcome. He would have gotten, at best, a scoundrel's welcome. He really had no place to go because if he survived, it would have been meeting a certain kind of doom. And the other choice was doom. (laughs) So it was tragic, in some ways exalting, but tragic. It's amazing that it's only with hindsight that the extraordinary nature of this voyage can be appreciated. How do you think we should remember this exploration today as we look back over 500 years? I think we should see it as a kind of glorious but tragic expedition that changed everything about how we see the world, but on the other hand, at a great human cost, and also exhibited a great deal of human frailty and cruelty along the way. So it showed both the best and the worst of human nature brought into play. I liken it to war in many ways, because he was a warrior, he was constantly in combat, And he had noble ambitions, many tragic effects as well. But then circumnavigation became more and more common. Thank you so much. Pleasure talking with you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.